Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. On Friday, August 5th, the Israeli Defense Forces launched Operation Breaking Dawn in response to days of saber-rattling by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, an Iranian-backed terror group threatening to attack Israel. The Israeli operation struck several terror targets in the northern Gaza Strip, killing a top Palestinian Islamic Jihad commander who was responsible for launching hundreds of rockets at Israeli civilians during the Gaza conflict in May of 2021. In this conversation with my colleague Jason Isaacson, recorded on Monday, AJC Jerusalem Director Avital Leibovich offered some answers to what happened and why. Take a listen. We're eager to hear your assessment of the security situation as it stands now, as well as what led up to the Israeli Defense Forces Operation Breaking Dawn, which began on Friday, and the extent and the impact of the attacks launched by the Iranian-backed terror group Palestinian Islamic Jihad, I have other questions for you uh, as well. But let's begin with the current state of play. Is the ceasefire that was announced yesterday still holding? uh, And is this latest crisis over, at least for now? So thank you, Jason, for this opportunity. Uh, The negotiations lasted the whole day yesterday until they reached a final agreement uh, to a ceasefire. The ceasefire came into effect last night my time in Israel, 11.30 p.m. However, I can tell you that there were two violations immediately after the ceasefire. The first one took place eight minutes after the ceasefire, and the second one took 15 minutes after the ceasefire. Both of them had to do with rocket fire, but after that, it has been quiet ever since. I have to tell you that personally, I still have my shelter prepared, All the windows are locked because when uh, the leader of the Islamic Jihad in Gaza says that, you know, maybe there will be some circumstances in which the Islamic Jihad will choose when to fire again rockets to Israel, then this means that, you know, we are in a temporary ceasefire. We still have to be alert here in Israel. But today was a quiet day, which is, of course, a positive thing. Let's go back to last week. Um, what what did trigger the IDF operation on Friday? Uh, what was and, and, and what is now the nature of the threat posed to Israel by Palestinian Islamic Jihad? Also, how does Islamic Jihad differ from the terror group Hamas, which, of course, rules Gaza? Is there a difference? A lot of big questions. I'll try to uh, to break them down and uh, and, of course, answer a complete answer. Uh, Bassam al-Assadi, is a senior Islamic Jihad leader who was arrested by Israel on Friday. Um, A senior uh, Islamic Jihad official told Al Jazeera immediately following this arrest that his arrest is, quote, crossing the red lines, and that, quote, our military wing will respond to Israel's crimes. Basically, what we've seen here is the Palestinian Islamic Jihad tried to connect two arenas, obviously Gaza, where they're located in, and the West Bank, where Israel arrested this terrorist Assadi. 
Uh, they wanted to say by this connection that they're responsible for both, they oversee both uh, areas. Israel naturally, naturally would never comply with such an attempt. Esadi, this terrorist, 61 years old, has been behind bars in Israel for 15 years. Uh, in addition to his being an inspiration, a jihadist inspiration, I would say, to young Palestinians, I can tell you that his two sons died uh, in clashes with the IDF in 2002. His wife was also arrested. And if you remember the recent attack, Jason, we had in Tel Aviv a couple of months ago where the terrorists just went into the streets and, and sprayed fire to a few restaurants. And this terrorist is actually a family member of Asadi. So basically, we are talking about a well-connected family to other terror groups in Judea and Samaria, in the West Bank, and also in Gaza as well. So this brings us to the fact that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad actually planned some kind of a deadly terror attack against Israeli targets. The Israeli government, while not wanting to take any chances, actually shut down all the roads and gave very strict restrictions to the communities, to the civilians living in the communities on the outskirts of Gaza. And I'm talking about something like 30,000 Israelis that were under some sort of a lockdown for four days, four very long days. Now, the main source of income in that area is agriculture. So you can imagine these people could not go to their fields to work. Many of them have different kinds of crops, which of course, obviously they lost. Uh, some uh, raise animals of different sorts. So this was quite, uh, quite a situation for these 30,000 people who live in that area. But what kind of really activity were they planning against an Israeli target? So according to the Israeli intelligence, we understand that um, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad wanted to use a precise missile called Kornet in order to target probably a bus of people, maybe a bus of soldiers, maybe a bus of workers in the area or anything of that sort. And that's why Israel decided after these four days of a lockdown, Israel decided to preemptively strike the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and prevent this attack. By doing so, by the way, also restraining other terror organizations in Gaza. Of course, we have Hamas in Gaza, but we also have other terror organizations across the region, which were very, very focused on how Israel is acting, what kind of weapons is it using, and what kind of success rates does it have. So we're talking about a total of 55 hours of a military operation, in the course of this operation, Jason, I can tell you that more than 165 jihad sites, military outposts, launching pads, manufacturing warehouses for mortars were all targeted. But the most severe blow that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, received was actually the senior leadership of this organization was eliminated. And within the few hours, the first few hours of this operation, you could see really a situation of unclarity and confusion 
from their perspective, they really did not know how to run the operation on the ground, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militants. They really were confused. You could see they really had no commander on the ground. And in addition to this, I can tell you that the Iron Dome batteries, which were deployed all over the country, because of course there was also concern that rocket fire will hit remote areas like Jerusalem and like Tel Aviv and maybe even beyond Tel Aviv. So batteries of Iron Dome have been deployed throughout the country. It had an amazing success of 96%. We can talk about that later. From an Israeli perspective, I can tell you that from day one of the operation, Israel set the tone for the operation. It chose the timing. It chose what kind of operation we'll have. And it also chose last night the conditions to end the operation. We had, as I can see, a very good amount of international legitimacy for Israel's self-defense and our image worldwide at the end of the day really was not harmed. As for the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they really failed in this operation. For number one, they failed to position themselves as the leaders of the Palestinian resistance because at the end of the day, they were left on their own. Hamas did not join the fun. Other organizations did not fire Israel from Lebanon, for example, where we know there are other Palestinian organizations, so they were left alone. And this was a very clear message to them of maybe mistrust, maybe not uh, receiving them as leaders. The second reason they failed is that they are an Iranian-backed organization, which means they get funding from Iran, they get directives from Iran. Actually, their leadership was in Tehran at the same time uh, where the military operation took place. And, you know, we spoke here in Israel that while their military and uh, leadership is in Tehran enjoying coffee in restaurants and, and sleeping in a five-star hotels in Tehran, their commanders here on the ground, they're really not doing so well. So the fact that they are an Iranian proxy actually distanced them from many Arab countries. So they did not gain support from them. The third reason I want to claim that uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad failed is that, you know, they gave a name to the operation from their perspective. And the name they chose was Uniting Fronts. And the implication of that was that they're uniting their just cause to fight in Gaza and the West Bank. In reality, they failed because the West Bank was quiet, East Jerusalem were quiet, the Arabs in Israel were quiet, and therefore they did not manage to do a unification of the fronts just like they aimed. And I would say the four reason for their failure was from an operational perspective. Look, they fired more than 1,000 rockets in three days, which only caused at the end minimal damage at the Israeli side. Now, 1,000 rockets is a very big number. It's a large number of rockets. Of course, I don't treat it in an easy way, but the damage was minimal. So they had nothing to show, nothing to present themselves as, you know, as, as leaders in, in, in the field of uh, ammunition and military success. They really failed operationally. Moreover, more than 160 rockets 
which they fired towards Israel, you turned in the air because the rocket goes high and then flies to its target. But 160 rockets, you turned and went back to Gaza. By doing so, they killed innocent people in Gaza. They wounded others. They created damage. So I would say they were not really successful operationally as well. So these are the four reasons I believe the uh, Islamic Jihad failed. You wanted to ask me about the difference between the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. And it is a good question because there is major differences. There are major differences between the two. For one, Hamas is leading. It's the leader of Gaza, which means they have a load of responsibility, primarily civilian responsibility. They have to feed 2 million Palestinians on an area of 356 square kilometers. They have to provide services, welfare services, education services, medical services. For them, for Hamas, the humanitarian axis is critical for their survival in Gaza. Before this operation took place, Israel made sure, for example, that every month millions of shekels are going in the Gaza Strip. In return, Hamas promised quiet. So of course it was in Hamas's interest to make sure that the Islamic Jihad launched uh, operation will be terminated as, as quickly as possible. Of course, I'll mention that there are 15,000 Gazans who work on a daily basis uh, in Israel. So Hamas has here a lot to lose, a lot more than the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which are basically a loose cannon. They are challenging Hamas. They don't have any civilian responsibilities. They get their orders from Tehran. And basically, they can decide when to fire, how far to fire, how many rockets to fire, and so on and so forth. Just on the arsenal part, I will just say that um, although Islamic Jihad is not a tiny organization, they have 10,000 soldiers, militants, and they have a similar number of rockets. Hamas is a lot bigger and more experienced and more trained and more developed militarily, and they have other kind of qualities, operational qualities. Uh, so this is another difference between them. But as I said, the main difference between them is really the fact that Hamas has civilian responsibilities, which the Palestinian Islamic Jihad do not have whatsoever. Finally, I just want to go back for a second to the operation because the biggest challenge that Israel has, and this meets us time and time again in every operation or war, not only in Gaza, but also in Lebanon. And I'm talking about the very densely populated areas which terror groups choose to place their weapons in, their caches, their storages, whether it's in hospitals or mosques or underground civilian houses. And by the way, where I can also share with you that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, just like Hamas, has dozens of terror tunnels which are used to flee terrorists or to store rockets. And they are really uh, located underneath civilian areas. So this is a huge challenge for Israel, which does whatever it can to prevent some kind of civilian casualties. By the way, in talking about Hamas, which stayed out of the fight this time, 
Of course, there have been other times in the past when it has not stayed out of the fight, and it has very much endangered the civilian population it is ostensibly charged with uh, with protecting. But let me move on or back to the circumstances of the ceasefire that was just negotiated yesterday. There have been a number of violent exchanges between Gaza-based terror groups and Israel over the years since Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Major exchanges have included Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009, Operation Protective Edge in 2014, and of course, what occurred in May of 2021, uh, the Hamas-Israel conflict. The latest confrontation with Islamic Jihad was significantly shorter than than all of these. Um, Establishment of a ceasefire, uh, which in the past has really been a protracted process, was accomplished in a matter of hours, it seems, uh, yesterday. What 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 changed this time? Why was it possible to bring about a ceasefire so quickly? You are 100% right. Uh, the operation this time lasted 55 hours. Uh, the reason why it ended after such a short time is really very simple. It's because Israel reached its goals. The first and the main goal was to thwart the immediate threat of those anti-tank strategic missiles which Palestinian Islamic Jihad planned to do. So this was the primary goal. And the secondary goal was to uh, target the senior commanders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in order to uh, make sure that it takes a long while before they return to their military uh, compatibility for the next time. So I would also say that this time, the IDF, Israel, were focused primarily and only on the Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets. And as I mentioned before, Hamas is in charge of civilian life. So for instance, infrastructure, roads, bridges, clinics, different service centers, different uh, operations, the previous operations which you mentioned, Israel targeted those infrastructure buildings. Since we're talking about an organization that has no relevance and no connection to infrastructure, of course, the targets were very surgical and very accurate. I would also like to say that there were also very low numbers of civilians who were uninvolved who were killed, although we did see human shield phenomenon return over and over again. I'll just explain to our viewers that human shield is a situation in which a terrorist understands or hears maybe above him some sort of a drone and understands that he's under surveillance. So the easiest thing to do is to grab a child in the arms and walk with that child, understanding and realizing that Israel will not target someone with a civilian next to him or a child uh, which he's holding. So this is something that we did see here, and it is similar to Hamas tactics. Navital, thank you again for leading us through this uh, very complicated and very urgent situation. Thank you. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a live recording of the event launching The Forgotten Exodus, AJC's six-part series on the untold stories of Jews from Arab nations and Iran. And catch this week's episode of The Forgotten Exodus, featuring Israeli Olympian Shachar Tsuperi on his family's journey from Yemen. You can find it at ajc.org slash Exodus. And tune in to People of the Pod next week for a conversation between my colleague Melanie Marin Pell and Walter Russell Mead about American support for Israel, the topic of his latest book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. 
Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 